this day, the 15th of October 2020, as we look at um, the particular theme um, for the first section tonight, um, it I will be dealing with um, seeing through the veil of tears, seeing through the veil of tears. And I would just like, and the text that I'm looking at is 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 16 to 18. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. It says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Note Paul didn't say we should not. And he, did, he just makes a declaration. We do not lose heart. But pastor, I sometimes, I'm losing heart. We do not lose heart. Though outwardly, we are wasting away, yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. Verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporal, but what is unseen is eternal. And so before we get to that, I would just like to read a backdrop from a passage that I use a lot concerning um, you know, funerals and so on. And it is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I'm just going to read a few verses in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And um, incidentally, when I was at Tyndale in the master's program, I did a paper in Old Testament on the Dr. Donald Leggett, the late Dr. Donald Leggett, on the first um, 10 verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. No, I'm not going to <laughs> go through all of that tonight, but I'm just going to read and just create a backdrop and see if it doesn't go somehow against the grain of our expectations. Um, and the title of the topic, the title of my paper I did was The Paradox of Reality. The Paradox of Reality. Verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 7 says, A good name is better than fine perfume. That means one's character and one's reputation is better than just fine perfume because fine perfume will wear off. Fine perfume um, will not stand the test of time. Fine perfume will not carry on after one passes. And so fine perfume has to deal with the, the cosmetics of life, if you may, or the external qualities. But and not just perfume, but fine perfume. 
So you get the best and most expensive perfume. You cannot put a price on character and a reputation and so on. Then the, the, the writer says, and the day of death better than the day of birth. Pastor, I'm going to hang up. No, I don't want to hear this kind of thing. It's, with COVID, it's pretty depressing right now. And you seem to be pessimistic and so on. Um, there's a difference between optimism and hope. There's a difference between optimism and hope. Think about that. Optimism is something that is emotionally driven and it's it depends it, it's fickle it's like fluff it's like foam because it it, it 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 keeps vacillating that's optimism you're optimistic or you're pessimistic but 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 um but hope biblically speaking is anchored in god's promises God, what God has promised, he will carry through. So therefore, it's a hope that will not bring shame, nor will it bring embarrassment. So we can rely on that. And, uh, and so hope is not case or whatsoever will be, will be. It's not somehow a hit and miss thing. It's biblically, it, is, it has to do with certainty based upon God's promises based upon God's character okay and it says verse 2 it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting in other words sadness a particular kind of sadness has a thera spiritually therapeutic role to play I know the Bible says so much rejoice always but Paul says Sorrowful, but yet always rejoicing. The Christian lives in the tension between the already and the not yet. Because we're in Christ, Christ is the future come to us already in Christ. We see that in scriptures, but not fully revealed or fully manifested. It's called a parousia. And I said some time ago that parousia is from the Greek word para which means parallel to be alongside of and with. And ousia is Greek word for being. And so God is not some aloof being somewhere out there, but there's a parallel, um, a, a with usness, if you may. I created that word. God is with us always. Um, and, and, but we need to be aware of it. It is better to go to the house of mourning. No, it's better. Yes, good, better, and best. It's better. There's a contrasting parallelism here. It's better to go to out of mourning than to the house of feasting because in our lifetime, we somehow prefer feasting. I'm not saying that we must be sadistic. I'm not saying that we must be masochistic either. But, but we, we, we like to rejoice. We like to celebrate. We just had Thanksgiving, which we're thankful for. And we don't like pain. Pain is just like contrary to our existence in this world. We're not designed for pain. But yet still, he goes further. He says, for death is the destiny of everyone. This is in the context of if Jesus Christ doesn't come because some will not be. This is the, this is the course of the world and its fallenness. The we always talk about destiny. Well, 
nobody talks about death being a destiny, something that we shy away from. Some of us don't even want to go and look at um, the dead. Um, I want to remember the person when the person was alive. No, back in the olden days, people used to die at home. In other words, the Bible, the Bible teaches us to face reality. As, as Abraham, and I think Romans 4 said, he looked and saw that he, he, he knew his body was dead. In other words, he faced the reality of his limitations like that. And yet still in that context, he recognizes that he has to depend on God alone. Verse 2, it says, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. No, the word of God so must take it to heart. But we don't, we don't like to take it to heart. I am preparing us for reality because as we get older, stuff is going to happen. It says frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. Not, not, not a literal house, but a place where we, we um, meditate. Right? But the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Because it goes on, it's explained itself. I'm tempted to expound it, but let me just read. Verse 5. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than listen to the song of fools. Note, you know, you know, note that it is better mentioned here, the contrasting parallelism, than listen to the song of fools. Verse six, like a crackling, like the crackling of thorns under the pot. So, is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. What is the crackling of thorns under the pot? You know, when back in Jamaica, we know what that is like when you get the bramble and you put the stick under the pot and it does, and you can hear it crackling and so on. And in a few minutes or not too long, it's ashes. So we can identify with that. When I, when I thought of, um. Last year, I think, you went um when the Raptors won. And um sometimes sports and all these things are good, but it's like a distraction to, to reality. And um, I remember when downtown Toronto, I don't think in history, uh, when the Blue Jays won or when the Raptors won, the whole place was jam-packed with people like all of Canada turned out. I mean, if possible, but I mean, it was terrible. It was, it was really overwhelming. People were rejoicing, celebrating and so on. Go to that same spot now. Like 12 o'clock with, with COVID happening now. You can hear the wind. That is like the crackling of thorns under the pot. That, that's what the, the laughter. So is a laughter of you know, when it's a fool's year means in the context of escaping reality through looking to what is not re what is transient and short-lived. Verse 7. 
extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. Verse eight, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. <laughs> My goodness. No, if the end of a matter is better than its beginning, this is, this is a remote parallelism based upon what he said in the first word part of the chapter. It's better, day of death better than the day of birth. Because the day of death is the end. The day of birth is the beginning. No, we, we have it the other way around. We, we celebrate the day of birth and we grieve for the day of death. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. And even when the end does not seem good, why would it say the end of a matter is better than its beginning? Because what it does, it closes off a chapter in this world. Can you imagine? Somebody once said, a scholar once said that, um, what would it like if we were to live a thousand years in this fallen world? And he said, the 70 years and more, equal a few more years, is actually God's grace. Sounds strange. No, follow me. Don't, don't, don't lose my mental ears yet. Follow me. This might sound simple, but I tell you, it helps me in my struggles and it helps me in facing the world out there as real as it is. As it, is. it depends on what, how you look at the world. It depends on what's, what spectacle, what's, uh, what, what glasses are you looking through? What lenses are you looking through? Are you looking through the lenses of your, your perception? Or are you looking through the biblical lenses? This is, this is the, 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 um, the, the, the challenge here. And patience is better than pride. Because patience is better than pride. No, both of them will begin with P. But patience might seem as if it takes, it takes a lot of strength to be patient. It takes a lot of grace to be patient, especially if you're sick. I remember I got an injury some couple of months ago, not too long ago, with my knee. I overdid something and I was in bed for about three days. I could not move. My mind was active telling me to get up. My goodness, I had to crawl sometimes just to go and, and go washroom after crawl on the ground. Sounds weird to come up in a Bible study, but I'm telling you that God sometimes, he reminds us of our vulnerability and our frailty, lest we forget. And so it, 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 it makes us develop the, the, the muscles of patience, patience with with ourselves, patience with people, patience with our situation, and so on. And says, do not be quick to, do not be, verse 9, do not be quickly provoked in your spirit. You see, we, we, we might not be provoked outward, but be provoked. Do not be quickly provoked in our spirit. That means patience is, is key. For anger um, resides in the lap of fools. In other words, he's saying here that um, if you um, tend to um, 
be quickly provoked in your spirit by everything thing that happens to you, um, then anger will make you do and think certain things and act a certain way, which is inappropriate and cause more problems instead. Verse 10 and the final verse. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. And all of us, every one of us is guilty of this. When we start to look back at our former years and when we just got saved and when we're young and, you know, we look back and, and say, um, my, my goodness, those were the old time religion. We wish we could get back to those days. My things are terrible now. Well, well, um, why were the good days better than these? But when we're back in those good old days, we're saying the same thing. Why were the good days better than these? If you keep going back and back and back like a rearview mirror, it has its place, yes. But who, who says it's better than these? That's the point here. Maybe these are the best days because these are the days that we have to face reality and, and experience God's grace and God's power in this changing world that's slipping. When we say life and time slipping away through our fingers, our lives as if the sun through our fingers. And we can't do a thing about it. The God who is the same yesterday, today and forever is the God is the same God for today. Today is better than yesterday because of who God is. That's important. Do not say why were the good old days, you know, when you're young and you just got married and everything, everything is hunky-dory and fine. And then, you know, the, the, the different phases of like, you know, life that you pass, you pass through and, and, and you see changes begin to happen in yourself and so on. Let me tell you something. Do not say. The word of God commands us. Do not ask these questions in your heart and mind. Because it makes us miss the opportunity. And the, the, to, to prove God, no. It, it makes us look away. It's a form of reversal, this reverse distraction. Where we look back into the past and we are preoccupied and even imprisoned by not only the bad things but also the good things in the past can also act as, a, as an imprisonment because it it, it, it it ties us up from facing the here and now right this moment where you are in your life right now as a Christian, as a person in whatever you're doing you don't know about tomorrow and you can't change what went on yesterday. Right now. How good is it? How good is it? Is a question I must ask. Instead of asking. Why were the old days better than these? Better than these. We need to be thankful. For now. We need to embrace. Now and the future too. But we have to face now. Having said that, let us turn to what the text is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 
um, chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. This is what it says. Therefore, we do not lose heart. <laughs> now, let me be frank with you, brethren. Sometimes, sometimes we experience and we feel the loss of heart. We lose heart. We lose heart in, in life. We lose heart in, in people. We lose heart in the church. We lose heart in, in even God sometimes if you're not honest. We lose heart when we cannot change stuff that we see happening that seems to be, where is God? And we wish we could, you, you know, somebody once, to, to, somebody told me that they like the great old days with the um, Old Testament because you could see the power of God working even more. But hold it there now. The world is passing away. And when God performs miracles, which he still does, it is, I always say, miracles and all these healings and so on are signposts. They are signposts pointing beyond themselves to the future, to Jesus, to the hope that we have. And I'm not trying to be escapist here, no. I'm being real. This is what the text is saying. Therefore, we do not lose hope, lose heart. Because when you lose heart, you know, you, you begin to feel hopeless and helpless and meaningless. Everything seems to be less because you, you lose heart. And though there is the word of God is real because it admits the reality of the situation. Though, and though is a transition which faces the reality. Though I'm facing this, it being a fact, Outwardly, we, every person, not just you alone, are present tense, wasting away. There's a thing called apoptosis, means to fall away from. Every cell in our body goes through that. And without only cancer cells do not go through apoptosis. That's why they kill us. Apoptosis is what is called programmed cell death. And um, because of the fall and, and the curse upon the world and so on, it is, it is what is happening. Okay? Though outwardly, we are wasting, not wasting away. Whoa, we don't like to waste things. We are wasting away. Uh. Yet, inwardly, we are being renewed each day. We are not renewing ourselves each day. This is a note, brethren. In the Greek, these are declarations. These are unconditional declarations for Christians. This is not something that will happen to you because you fast and pray, or because you trust God, or because you, you know, verse, this part of the verse, though outwardly and so on, um, even when you are being renewed each day, this has to do with God's faithful commitment to us. Whether we feel it or not. But what are we seeing? We are seeing the wasting away, not only of our bodies, but of our situation, of our spouses, of our 
um, children of nature. Look at the fall. Look at fall right now. Fall, you can see it's a cyclical thing. Those are kind of reminders, although life itself in the Christian life is not cyclical, it's linear, right? The cyclical format is where all the other religions take root in. That's why you have reincarnation and all those things, because you, you, you keep coming back in a cycle. And even the Lion King song, the cycle of life. Because life to them is just that. For the Christian, it's different. We pass through it physically like that, but not the same. Spiritually, it's different. Though outwardly, we are being when passing away. We inwardly, we are, we are being. We are being. Our being is being renewed. And that word renewed there is key day by day. So as we are getting older and passing away day by day, we are losing cells. We are gaining spiritual substance more and more. We are increasing. And this is what matter. Verse 17 is, is the key. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us. This is where I'm going to park for, for a while. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us. Just that there. An eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is in other words, in all the pain, all the struggles of going through, all the troubles and so on, we are actually seeing through the veil of tears and sorrows. The, it, 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 the veil is there. The veil is happening to us. What is the veil? The veil is a wasting away, the outward thing. All of these are veils. And by faith, we see through the veil. This is what he's saying. Now, how can you look and see the unseen? You know, verse 17 of, of 2 Corinthians 4, you know, we, we always beat to death, um, as it were, no pun intended. Um, verse 16. Um, but yet, yet it says, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Who here tonight on this? You don't have to answer out, but in your heart, you're losing heart. Verse 17. The main argument here, verse 17, is because the light and momentary affliction is doing something. Note, we hate, as I that's right, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We hate all these things that are happening to us. But guess what? They are doing something. They are achieving for us something. It's working for us an eternal weight of glory. Verse 17. All verse 18 does is say, look at it. Can't you see it? Look at it. You, you can't see it with your physical eyes, but look at it. This is how we live as Christians. And most of our frustration because we are not looking in this way. If you look at the fallenness of humanity, our fallenness, and it's as if your heart can sink within you. 
nature, you see it again, the leaves falling, the change color, beautiful before they, and then in a few a month or so, the trees are bare. This light momentary affliction is doing something. It is working for us an eternal weight of glory. Yet you might ask, what unseen are you talking about, Pastor? And how do you look at something that is unseen? That is, a, seem to be a contradiction in, in natural sense. You can't look at what you can't look. You can't look at what you can't look at. <laughs> um, I say that you must look at the unseen, but let us see how is that possible? How do you look at the unseen? And as, and so as not to lose heart. And so as to be renewed every day, because it is looking at the unseen that we do not lose heart. There's no other way. It's not hype. It is not having a good service or it's not just feeling good because you hear some songs. And that, that is, that's momentary. There's a sustainedness here. He said that light and momentary. What do you see when you look at verse 17? You see Paul calling his affliction, which lasted a lifetime technically. He's calling it momentary. Now I am I am I'm 68 years old, for you who knows. And I started to do some calculating. And I, I hope I'm here as long as God gives me grace to be here, of course. We are our times on his hands. And don't get me wrong, but when you're getting older. You start to see life a little differently, right? When you're young, you just feel, oh, yeah, I might have an accent, might have me, but I mean, you, you, there are other things that are preoccupying you right now. And you may say, say Pastor, this is your, you, you may be imposing your thinking on us now and so on. But, but Paul is talking to every Christian, young and old. There's a young man, as I was telling you some time ago, 43 years old, um, a friend of the family is here, and um, his name is Mike, and he was just crossing the crosswalk, as I shared some time ago with you, and a car went through the crosswalk. He had a right of way and hit him and killed him at 43 years old. This was just a few weeks ago. I wasn't expecting that. There was no, you know, Paul, Paul himself suffered until the end. What was Paul's end? Paul's end was the sword severed his head from his body. Now, Pastor, I need you to uplift me, you know, Pastor. I don't want you to beat me down with this discovery. That was Paul. This is my life. We don't have those things nowadays. I'm just showing you some realities of this word here. If Paul was going to have a retirement in his olden years, you know, as a, you know, then, then um, the only retirement is post beheading. Just like Stephen, Stephen wasn't old from my understanding. So we're getting a contrast here. So what am I saying? 
Paul is saying here that how can he call these gnawing seem to be lasting and we have some things creeping up on us as Christians that might never go away. You know, sometimes we always use the phrase, I'm just passing through this rough time. It's like, um, it's momentary. God will see us through. God will always want that and so on. But yet still, there's some of us just certain things we might have to live with until we, we go to be with him. There's a contrast in verse 17 between momentary in verse 17 and eternal. Note, note the contrasting parallelism here. Momentary and eternal and the contrast with light and weight. Notice that in verse 17. Or momentary and light affliction cannot return with the eternal weight of glory. There is a deliberate contrast here. And the Christian life is to live in this contrast. To live in this contrast. Let's read it again. He says, his light momentary affliction is preparing. Is working for him. An eternal weight of glory. So that he could see beyond the grave, even in this life. According to promise, he saw glory. The glory of God that would be seen. The glory of God that would be given to him and to you and to me. And it made his lifelong suffering look momentary. It doesn't just... It's happening, yes, but are we aware of the momentariness, if you may, of our present situation? And, and, and of course, the frustration and all the stuff we go through is real. I'm not saying it's not real, but it is in this tension that we see it as momentary. Not that well, tomorrow it will go away or next week or next month it will go away. It's momentary even for all of our life. And not only momentary, but it is light. <laughs> Lifelong suffering look momentary and it made the weight of the pain look light. So it's momentary, which is the time, and light has to do with actual um contrasting what is to come it's not in it's a it's a metaphorical expression not a literal lightness but but the bible says come unto me all that are labor and heavily and i give you rest take my yoke upon you you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light come to me we see this in matthew chapter 11 verses 28 and the 30. Yes, because I look to the unseen. I can see glory by faith beyond the grave. 
that's going to make up for this brief life. That it will look momentary in my present experience and it will look light in all the weight of struggles and problems. Paul says we are hard pressed on every side. Of course we are hard pressed, but that hard pressing in, in contrast to what is to come is, is feels light. Suffering produces glory. What? Verse 17 says it. This word is preparing us. Not only is our affliction momentary, not only is that it is um, light in comparison to eternity and glory, but it is also totally meaningful. Meaningful. Not meaningless. Now, here's where we add something here. No. Not only, let me repeat, not only is our light affliction, our affliction light in comparison to eternity, but all of it is totally meaningful. <laughs> Every time something terrible happens, like on TV and, um, and even your own life, we use the term, it's meaningless. That's what it looks like. It's what it looks like. Look at it. Look at it. It is, this is meaningless. You know, you, you, you find, you, you read some stories and you, you see some things happen and it does not have any meaning to us. What does that mean? Some people even give out against God and say, well, um, where is God in all of this? How could God allow this? What? How, how could God allow this? What kind of question is that? So we are actually saying that God should not allow it, and because God allows it, God is a bad God? This gets even deeper now. Bear with me. When a child dies, that doesn't make sense. That's meaningless. The Oklahoma bombing, 9-11. Meaningless. Meaningless, wasting lives. Accidents, a crash, two jets that crashed a, a, a year or so ago with some of the most brilliant people and Everybody is equal, of course, just died. And you trace back in your mind all your learning and everything. Meaningless. Even Ecclesiastes says life is like grasping at the wind. And yet he says the end is good. But the end is tragic. In me, just, just look on your life and my life. How will it end? You see, the internet helps us to um, get things even quicker on YouTube. You can see things more than 
even how it happened in the past. But things were happening in the world the same way too, but with us that didn't have communication, now we can just get things just instantly. But our text says, light momentary affliction is preparing. It is, it is doing something. I like pause at that word preparing. It is preparing for us. It is serving us. It's like a servant. So our afflictions, light and momentum are there. They are our servants. What a strange way to look at suffering. But you're serving us based upon God's sovereign wisdom and providence. If, if we, we, we cannot say to them, okay, don't serve me anymore. Then, then we would not have anything like that. But, but they are obeying God in the scheme of things. And we can't just think about it. Even if you say, okay, God heals me. Yes. Someone once said, the late Jim Rohn said, and I always say this, that physical life is a struggle to keep death at a respectable distance. Physical life is a struggle to keep death at a respectable distance, but it's going to catch all of us eventually if Jesus doesn't come before that. Why? But yet still, until then, until when it happens, it is all the struggles you're going through, brethren. God is not underestimating it or, or, or saying that it's not real to you. But I'm telling you, stuff I'm going through now with family and so on, it feels heavy. And it seems unchanging. And we're praying for a deliverance, a breakthrough, and God in his sovereignty will do this if his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it says here, this, um, this does, it doesn't say that our affliction will be followed by an eternal weight of glory. No, it says that it is, they are preparing us. The Greek word used here is katagazomai. Katergazomai, if I pronounce it correctly. Big words. I'm a bit rusty with my Greek. Um, it means um, it means to produce, to prepare, to cause, to bring about. So these troubles that's why the psalmist said it was good that the lord afflicted me all that's happening in the world meant it for evil god is meaning it for good and when god means it for good is for us to look beyond the veil to see with our spiritual eyes or inner eyes that's why paul prays that the eyes of your understanding be enlightened so that we can see through the veil of troubles, the veil of tears. Every moment in our lives, we do not what, know what can happen next. Let me just close off this section with something very scary. 
look at John the Baptist. I know we talk about it a lot, but I'm going to do throw some serious, strange thing. That when I started this, it's as if I entered into John the Baptist situation. You know, and in, in, um, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, this is what Jesus said. Among those born of women. <laughs> no, Jesus had a way of saying things. Of course, everybody's born of women. But he wants us to get the point that there's no, no exemption here. Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Never performed a miracle, as I always say. But in God's eyes, and brethren, you might feel that you, you serve a purpose. He, he sacrificed his life. He was in the wilderness. He, he did a disciplined life short and everywhere he, he went. I mean, gave up everything. Talk about sacrifice, this was it. He, he was out of the regular run of life. And we're, we're going to see in another study, hopefully next week or so, something to that regard concerning um, the, the, the choosing between um, the, the, the um, so-called disturbances that God would bring in our life. There's no real disturbances or interruptions, as it were. And so it says here, he is in prison. But you know why he's in prison, right? Because he looked the king right in the eye, right in his face and said, you can't have her. She is Philip's wife. You are an adulterer. My goodness. We find this in Mark chapter 6, verses 6, 17 and 18. Well, that was a serious thing to say to the king, who back then had, back then had absolute authority over everybody to do anything he wanted to do. So if he puts him in jail, he is, he hasn't killed him yet. But there he sits. Now, that could be a very, John was passing through a, a, an eclipse now, a kind of transition. It's not like right on the spot. He knew his verdict. Sometimes the waiting brethren can cause all kind of mixed feelings. You're waiting on a diagnosis. You're waiting on something. You're waiting on some result. And sometimes your expectations are not what you expect. I don't know why I'm talking like this. It was Herod's birthday. And he gives a party for himself. He throws in a little bonus. A little sexual bonus for his guests. He has his stepdaughter dance. A really, really pleasing dance. Turns on everybody. They're enjoying it. And when she's done, of course, she pleases the king. And he's pleased because his guests are pleased. And so she has some reward that 
should be meted out to her. She gets some reward. The king says in Mark chapter 6, verses 22 to 23, I'll give you whatever you want up to half my kingdom. Just for a dance like that. No, if you think about it, this is a story that how the script is being run is like it's we look through physical eyes. This is not making any sense. Why, why would he make a statement like that? She goes to her mom. No, she could have said it by herself. She could have said, you know, let it. This is what I want. I want to, I want a house for my, me and my family for the rest of my life. I want you to give, put money in the bank for all of my siblings, my mother, my dad, and my everybody in my family. I want them to be um, well taken care of, no matter what happens to you. Of course, he promised half of the kingdom. That is it. I mean, she could have said, okay, yes, I'll take half of the kingdom. I mean, how could you compare the life of John the Baptist to half of the kingdom? In her eyes, as a regular girl like that, she goes to her mom, Herodias, who hates John, as we know. She says, what should I ask for? That is a question. She didn't ask who, but what. Well, what can include who too, but you know what I mean? And her mom says, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Mark 6.24. She walks back in. Everybody listening. What's she going to ask for? Everybody's waiting for that. I want right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Mark 6.25. This is in the Bible. God could have cut all of this out of the Bible. Because we don't read and have devotions with these things. We just have them as historical stuff. But enter into the life of John the Baptist for a moment. Based upon our topic here. There's silence, I believe, in the room. She can't take it back now. And the king has, okay. Get it. Get the head. Get the head. Sometimes it feels as if people have to our heads. That they want to kill us. That they want to undo us. Sometimes situations feel that way. John is now, the scene now switches to John. In. John, and I dealt with this already, but it's relevant here. Bear with me. Bible said we want to remind the brethren of these things. John, John is sitting in his cell. Maybe wondering how the kingdom of God is going to come. Because he had been 
preaching faithfully all along about the kingdom of God and the king and him said, um, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the and, and, and he was a bit disappointed with Jesus in a sense because he wasn't seeing a lot of things that he said that Jesus would do what Jesus was doing at the time. You see, timing is everything with God. You know, this is where again John had some expectations that were unrealistic for the revelation. In other words, John himself could not control God. I mean, we see the same thing in Revelation 19, somewhere there, where John on the Isle of Patmos again, where the angel gave revelation, and he bowed down to worship the angel, and he said, no, don't worship me. Worship God alone. I'm just a servant like you. Many of us, we can get all of these things are in the scriptures for us to know that God is God. And God owes us nothing. You think that God would owe John the Baptist, you know, John the Baptist served Mr. Faithful. I have to get him out of this situation. There's no way that I'm going to make them come and cut off his head. Can you imagine the embarrassment? Where's the power of God in this? There's no power of God. How is God getting the glory when they dance, they have their, their um, all their terrible, sinful situation? John was doing the right thing. He did, John didn't sin. They were sinning. And it seems that if, when Jesus made a statement about John being such a, the greatest of all the prophets, as it were, um, that he didn't hear that when the servants left. And here now, John maybe, you know, how, how's the kingdom going to come in? Because if the kingdom were to come in now, then I, I'm okay. Because another thing that is important that Jesus was his cousin, according to the flesh. Not only that he served Jesus faithfully, but they were related. <laughs> this is not like Jesus letting him down now. You, you wonder, you see Jesus again, the same similar thing with, John, with um, Lazarus. Mary and Martha were saying, if you were here, he would not have died. If Jesus were there, Jesus could work a miracle. Jesus could do all kind of stuff. He turned what? Um, water into wine, he multiplied the bread and the fish and so on. So he could stop it. A lot of things in our lives, we wonder, how oh, why God let it go through like that? Now enter, you're, you're like in John now. The door opens. Maybe he thought, well, no, you know, some help came now and he's, he's going to, because how could I? How could I, how could death enter his mind when he, when he, when he didn't do anything wrong? He was serving God all these years. His end, you know, should be maybe like like um, Elijah. Some 
the, 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 um, the soldiers come to the door, stand there. One with a sword. There is silence. And I, I, I dare to say here now, what is passing through John's mind? John, you think John has said, yes, Lord, I know that you come to kill me in his mind. I'm ready to die. He had some questions about Jesus before that. Because it wasn't coming through the way that he thought. That's why we have to be careful. Even when we know the scriptures and we can quote this and that, it doesn't mean because you quote scriptures in certain contexts that God is now bound to do something in that context. God is God. And he works through the scriptures, yes, but, but he in his wisdom and his sovereignty will not be bound by our interpretation, uh, our expectations of him. We're told in Romans chapter 11, the last few verses there, that he's, he's an inscrutable. His way is beyond tracing out. No one can say to him, why you do this and do that? The one with the sword, John kneels down. If John had struggled, they would have tied him up still. They came for his head. Maybe John asks, what's going on? I, I don't know, brethren, but correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're in a situation like this, what will be passing through your mind? Have you ever been in some situation where you things just happen so quickly? Some tragedy, some things happen so fast that you can't even think what, what just happened. But Maybe it's an accident, um, somebody had a heart attack or something suddenly, or you see life just unraveling right before your eyes and you're helpless. And of course, they took his head. Let me quote something that someone said here. We have to, we find God with fellowship with other Christians, yes. But we have to, as I said some time ago in a sermon, Psalm 42. My soul, my soul, why have thou, have thou described me within me? Hope thou in God. A couple of times this mentioned here. And um, when you're in a situation where it seems hopeless, you have to preach God's word into your soul until your heart begins to see through the veil. What would you think? God, what can be more meaningless? than a party where a girl dances, asks for the greatest man on the planet's head. And within two verses in the, you know, in the word of God, 
is dead. What, what, what is that? Forgive me here, brethren, but this is, when, when you just look at this for a moment, pause for a moment, um, something simple, party, dances, she asked for the greatest man on the planet at that time. Uh, 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 for all time, apart from Jesus. Jesus said there's no greater of anyone born, no greater because he paved the way for the Messiah. No greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist, apart from Jesus, and the statement of what Jesus said here, that John the Baptist was the greatest man that walked upon this earth. Not that God is partial in anything. But in the sense of what he paid the way for or who. And to see him end like this is seemed to absolutely meaningless. Way to die. What is glorious about that? What is glorious about the way I'm him losing his head? What is glorious about you and myself if it comes to that with what's happening? If uh, in our lifetime, if it comes to that, where we'll be persecuted and we'll be killed, either you know, by beheading in some countries, um, it could be by injection or imprisonment or some form of death shooting squad. What is your heart singing? The Bible says the Spirit of God helps us to make melody in our hearts. Don't look. You can look with your physical eyes with the seeing. But God is saying that we have, we have eyes that need to be opened. Spiritual eyes. Not, not to see Jesus and accept him I'm talking about but the eyes of our mind and our understanding that, that our prayer is that they be enlightened so that we might know by seeing, by faith, through the word of God, through the veil of troubles and sorrow, through the tears, the veil of tears, the veil of tears, the veil of tears, the veil of suffering, the veil of pain, the veil of disappointments, the veil of of setbacks, the veil of physically, the veil of cancer, the veil of heart disease, the veil of type 2 diabetes. These are veils in this world. When, when your mom dies, when a child dies, when somebody gets cancer at 40, there's a young man I, I'm dealing with right now, married, very spiritual, 43 years old, no, 47 years old, prostate cancer. And guess what? They're going to take out his prostate at 47. When a car careens out of control on a sidewalk and mows down people, we see it happening in New, happening in New York some time ago, and in Toronto, we see it here. You could be walking there and all of these things, that's meaningless. No, it's not. It's just that we don't, we see, we look, we see with the wrong eyes. Of course, with the physical eyes, it seems meaningless because it cannot uncode or understand 
that this world is passing away. We are trying to normalize an abnormal world. And so when we, when we look with those physical eyes and only them alone, of course you'll see this thing and there's this human tendency, yes, but, 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 and, but if, we keep, if, we, if we keep those eyes, looking with those eyes and not the other eyes, then we will lose heart. What God is saying here, these sufferings, they are working for us. Even that's why I read earlier in um, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 talks about um, sorrow is good for the heart and so on. And, and, and because it's showing, it's working for us. It's good, working for us, working not against us, but for us. How can something that is working against me be working for me? Oh my goodness. This doesn't make sense. Of course it does. The Bible says it does. Therefore, we do not lose heart. And if we if we look on another way, then we will lose heart. That's why Paul says here, therefore, we do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. But take these truths. All the ones you have heard from every message you have heard from me and from others throughout your Christian lifetime. And they are saying something. But we keep shifting back into looking into what is we see. Preach these truths to yourself day by day. Focus on them. Every morning, get alone with God. Teach, minister to yourself through the Spirit of God into your mind. And your heart will begin to sing with confidence even if you're outwardly not but there's that undergirding confidence deep inside because god is doing a mighty work in you through his word and through his people and through the ministry of others let us now look at um, how this fits in. There's a purpose when I'm doing this. How this fits in with Revelation. Uh, the overview I started last week. What this teaches us is, is that we are learning. It's teaching us. You see? Learning to live now as the ultimate future. Let me go a little deeper now. We are already fellow heirs with Christ. Not that we shall be. We are already fellow heirs with Christ and joint heirs. If you have time to read Psalm 2, you see the messianic enthronement and rule over the nations. And in Psalm 8, the Son of Man having all things in subjection to him. The glory here in these Psalms, the glory here, glory here means rule. Remember in Revelation 20, we, we, we talk about the throne and we talk about, um, when I get to it eventually, bear with me, I'm, I'm laying a solid foundation here. 
Um, you don't just rush into something like that. But if you notice the pattern here, if you look at in Revelation 20, um, when you got thrones in the Bible, most of the references made to thrones have nothing to do with thrones on this physical earth down here. Okay, note that. The word glory using these thrones here means rule. Now, we normally don't think of glory as meaning rule. Glory here means rule. Romans 8 unpacks that even more. Jesus' people share already his present and coming rule over the world. What does this mean? In Mark chapter 10, Jesus explains to James and John that true power is modeled on the Son of Man giving his life as a ransom for many. So what does present glorification look like? Now, there's future glorification, and we always are taught that we're not glorified yet, but Jesus said, I have given them the glory. So therefore, we have glory now. But the physical manifestation of that glory in our bodies, the resurrection of our bodies, is yet to come. So the physical bodily resurrection is a physical resurrection. That's a physical manifestation of glory. But bear with me now. We have the glory now already. When Paul says in Romans chapter 8, those he, um, he justified, them he sanctified and so on, he called and justified and them he glorified. Now, historically in time frame of the physical journey of the creation to, to come the future, the future glorification of making all things new is still future. Physical is future. The whole creation, Romans 8 talks about that. Yes, it is future. But when it says in Romans 8, glorified, it means that spiritually that has happened already to the believer. And it is manifested in a way I'm going to show you now based upon the exegesis of this text. So, what does present glorification look like? Because we don't talk about present glorification because our understanding has been conditioned by, um, by a medieval um, Renaissance type of um, looking at the world and it, it has filtered through and influenced us with a Platonic Newtonian type of thinking. But from a biblical Hebraic way of thinking, there is no distinction in God's word between um, theory and practice. In other words, the already under not, not yet, already Christ has ushered in. Uh, the, the, the age to come has, was inaugurated in Christ's, Christ's resurrection. And so we experience already, as I some time ago, the spiritual resurrection in Christ because those, we have been risen with him. We see it in Colossians, we see it in Ephesians. That's not a physical resurrection, that's a spiritual resurrection. Watch now. So we are partakers of the age to come already. We have eternal life already in us. And so he says now, how do you tie that now with what I was sharing all along up to this point in the context of, of Revelation, of Romans 8? And when we look at Revelation, when we get to it, is that um 
suffering and prayer. Suffering and prayer. That's it. Prayer is the groan of articulate anguish from the heart of the pain of the world. Let me repeat. Prayer is the groan of inarticulate, I should say, inarticulate anguish from the heart of the pain of the world. We are in the world. We are Christians, we are in the world. Creation groans in travail. The church also groans. And the spirit also groans at the heart of the pain of the church, at the heart of the pain of creation in the world. <laughs> Let me read my notes here. Creation groans. The church groans. The spirit is groaning at the heart of the pain of the church, at the heart of the pain of creation and the world. So here we see a scenario of, of um, if you're still with me, your scenario is this. Um, creation is groaning. All the suffering we see around us, accidents, all terrible things. We are in it. And one of the problems with Christianity today is that we have an escapist mentality. We're just looking for a rapture to take us away, leave this dirty earth alone. No, we are supposed to be down here right until the end. Let me clarify more. Why the suffering that you feel, the groan that you feel is your groaning because you are still a part of this fallen creation. But there's a difference. They are groaning too. But you are priests. We are told in Revelation, that's why Revelation begins in chapter one. He has made us a, king, a kingdom and priests. Not shall be priests. What is priestly? Is, that, is it something that you, some label you have? No, there's a functionality to this priesthood as Christians. Suffering and prayer, they are inseparable. If there's no suffering, there can't be any prayer that makes sense, according to Romans chapter 8. The church groans, that means you and myself. The church is called to stand in its messianic rule in this world. No, we are not Messiah, but we, because we are in the Messiah, we gather up, as it were, as priests do, the pain and the suffering of the world to the Father. Remember, God's original plan was that man, God decided this, not man, that God would create this whole world and cosmos and God's idea to put man in charge of it. And since man messed up everything and so on, God said, I am going to, God will, sin will not have the final say. And so God, grace, sin, we're sin abound, grace superabounded. And so God now empowers, oh, no faithful man throughout Israel, nobody faithful. The just one who is Jesus shall live by his faith. So he's a true faithful human Messiah. Therefore, God highly exalted him in Philippians chapter 2. 
The son doesn't need to be exalted. The son is already God, but the son becomes human to, to bring mankind or humankind where he ought to be. And that is a church, God's new, new creation in Christ. And so in Romans, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Bible says, did you not know that you shall judge angels and judge the world or govern the world and govern angels? That's what the word of God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Then it says here now, the church is called to stand in its messianic role in this world. The Messiah is to come, but the church, we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, that means, you remember when Jesus Christ was, was being persecuted by Saul, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not just the church, not the spirit, but me in the present situation. And so therefore, how? By standing in prayer at the place where the world is in pain and we are also part of this physical creation in this sense, in the fallenness of it. We are standing in prayer. That's why the Bible says there are different kinds of prayer. There are different kinds of prayer in order that, that, God's, that, that the Spirit of God might be crying to the Father from that point. In other words, if you notice the order, creation is groaning. There's three groanings in Romans 8. Then we are groaning in creation. And then the spirit is groaning for us. But the spirit's groaning now is inarticulate to us because the spirit now carries us up, escorts us up, as were well, as priests to the Father. And we see that in Romans chapter 8, verses 26, 27, and 28. Yes. The spirit cries, groan to the father with words that cannot be understood by us. And he brings it to the father from the point of our pain. And we bring it to the, to the spirit from the point of the world and the people, the situation we are in. And these groans are what? They are like birth pangs anticipating the, 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 the birth of a new creation, the, the, um, the, the, the manifestation of that new creation coming to us. So, so, so the church is at that threshold. My goodness. Yes, your pain in this world has messianic meaning. Your pain in this world has messianic meaning and priestly meaning. Note, our own pain echoes the world's pain. Our own pain echoes the world's pain. And I, I don't have time to finish this here, but, but there's a Christian political theology. Now, I'm not saying that we must, you know, we need politicians, I'm not, hitting because of the politics that's going on in the states and all of that stuff i'm not getting into that but you see if you notice there's no perfect political system there is a king that is always king that cannot be replaced that rules in the kingdom of men and he everyone is accountable to him god decides to run this world by humans in particular human the human being jesus christ 
Right now, God decided to run this world not by Satan, but by Jesus Christ. Read first, first read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. You see that there a moment. We have time to read it. I read it all the time. Not only in this present world, but the world to come. So there you find the tension in, in Ephesians chapter 1, 18, that he is Lord and has power over all authorities, the church and, and every authority, not only in this world, but the age to come. And he has given it all for the church, to the church or for the church can be translated there in verse 22, that God will fill everything in every way. So there we find that brethren, the God-man. Note, so we see hints of it in the Old Testament where the Bible says, so Solomon, we see it in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 23. So Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of his father, David. He prospered and all Israel obeyed him. That verse, 1 Chronicles 29, 23, is a hint, a foreshadow of Jesus and his governance as a man upon the throne. And so we find out, no, Solomon was not the Lord. But Solomon, the throne was the Lord. Solomon sitting on the Lord's throne. No, so Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king. This, is, this was a physical throne. He was down here, but he was representing a, a spiritual and a cosmic throne. And Israel was a remnant through which the Messiah should come. No, all of this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ fully. And so we now partake of that. That's why we... We are joint heirs with him. Heirs means we're kings and priests. Not we shall be kings. And so. Oh boy. We should never try to snatch at the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was where, where, where mankind was trying to snatch at the knowledge of good and the tree of good and evil. We're trying to make up rules, their own rules for life. And this is what is happening in society. We want to be our own boss, set our own rules. Just as Adam and Eve wanted to access the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that they could dictate, as it were, the rules of life. Only God is sovereign and who has that control. And so that's why. When we rebel against God, we are setting up our own rules. We are saying, no, my way of doing things is right and not God. That's what disobedience is. And that's why God has come to judge the world and put things in order. So we know that the real power, so we, we know what real power is like. Real power is humble service to the needs of people. And the concerns of the world. And they don't know it. That is a top agenda. The truth. We as church. A church represent the truth. Of faithful presence. We're a people of presence. I did some studies about 10-15 years ago. On the, the gift of presence. 
we spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, and somewhere there. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. This is this is a state of the church. This is who we are. May the eyes of Philistine be enlightened despite that, so we will see the other world while we are even in this world through faith, through the word of God. And so we ought to be working models of new creation. We are new creation people of the Jesus-shaped future. It's a future that is Jesus-shaped, the Jesus that is the authentic human. We have a love story, not a power story. All power must be informed and fueled by love. If it is not, then it will lead to tyranny. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave. The power of love, not the love of power. God is a power-shearing God. You know, God, God rules the world, but guess what? He shares that power with us. The power to suffer, the power to intercede, the power to be, to be priests, to represent. This was God's idea. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the truths as found in your word. Oh God, bring clarity to our thinking. May your spirit take your word and open our eyes to a, a deeper dimension of reality and truth. Oh God, when we look into your book, Revelation, we see why the church is found in Chapters two and three. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.